This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. The last few months have brought a lot of changes, ones we can see and ones we just know are there, to the way that we live. You can see the economic troubles in the increased number of empty storefronts on New York City's streets, and you can read about them in news about bailouts, layoffs, and factory closures. One of the most poignant and visible results of the current economic crisis, though, is the effect it's having on where we live, in other words, our homes. We know foreclosures are on the way up, and we know it's at least in large part because of the housing bubble that we're in the trouble we are now. Today on Fordham Conversations, we're talking about one of the more harmful aspects of the housing market and the effect that it has on neighborhoods. Housing speculation had become something of a national pastime as of about mid-last year, what with the wide availability of house-buying credit and a perhaps even wider belief that houses and apartments were going to continue to increase in value forever. So it was definitely a good idea to borrow against them, flip them, and generally use them as a license to print money. Anyway, we all know the rest of that story. And we also know a couple of other things that we're going to talk about on the show today. The first is that housing speculation wasn't invented along with the adjustable rate mortgage. It has a long, storied, and ugly history. And the second is that it doesn't just affect the people buying and selling homes. It also affects renters. My first guest on the show this morning is Burl Satter. Satter is the chair of the history department at Rutgers University in Newark. She's also the author of the recent book, Family Properties, Race, Real Estate, and the Exploitation of Black Urban America. That book's out for Metropolitan. In that book, Satter tells the story of one particularly destructive version of housing speculation in her childhood home of Chicago and the profound damage it did to the city's black neighborhoods, in particular one neighborhood, Lawndale, that had special resonance for her. It's where her father grew up when it was a working-class Jewish community and where he owned a few apartment buildings. Later on the show, we'll talk about how the housing bubble has affected residents of the Northwest Bronx, but first, I spoke to Burl Satter in our studios. Burl Satter, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Now, you start the book with a story about your father. My father was an independent attorney. He got his law degree in 1939. He, um, During the uh, 40s, he just had an eclectic practice. But in the late 50s, he began to zero in on a particular problem that was widespread in the city of Chicago, and that was the problem of exploitative real estate speculation. What happened was that in 1957, an African-American couple came to him with a problem. Uh, Their names were Albert and Sally Bolton, and they had bought a house and had missed a payment on the house and were being thrown out. And they came to him and said, is there any way you could slow this thing down? Maybe we could get the money together and keep the house. And he said, well, you know, what did you pay for it? And they told him $14,000, which in 1957 was a lot of money. And he said, something's odd here. He investigated the property records and found out that the man who had sold them the property Um, who had acted as their real estate agent, was actually the property's owner. He also found out that this man had bought the property weeks before he sold it to the Boltons. He had bought it for $4,000 and sold it to them for $14,000. On top of that, uh, he found out that when the Boltons, you know, uh, first heard about the house and 
saw that the price was kind of high and they weren't sure if they could swing it and they said we'd like to talk to an attorney and get back to you that this real estate agent had said oh no no I'm an attorney I'll handle everything for you so he had sold them a property that he owned and didn't tell them that masqueraded as a neutral real estate agent acted as their attorney but then used uh, his knowledge to push them into a deal that was completely in his interest and not at all in theirs and then set them up to buy this property um, in a particular way that left them really vulnerable. He had sold them the property on contract, as, as it was called back then. What this meant was that the Boltons um, put down a down payment, and it was a fair down payment, um, just like anyone would if you're buying a property. They were responsible for taxes, insurance, interest, and maintenance. But unlike people who buy with a mortgage, the legal ownership of the property remained with the seller, in this case, this this um, real estate agent, until the entire cost had been paid off. And if they missed one payment in the course of that, say, 30-year contract, they lost the property, it went back to the um, seller. What was at the heart of the matter was that because the Boltons were African-American, they were unable to get loans from the vast majority of banks and savings and loans in Chicago. And that was because of a federal policy by the Federal Housing Administration, which refused to insure mortgages that were made to black buyers on the whole. When he heard the Bolton story and he saw how they had been set up and he saw how they had been misled, he thought he had to do something. And this drew him into a political crusade against these contract sellers. And it was a big crusade because in Chicago, in the 1950s and 60s, 85% of the properties that were sold to African Americans were sold on contract. Chicago, by 1960, had a black population of almost 1 million people. So this was a massive problem. It was a massive system whereby blacks who had the same economic uh, income as whites who were doing fine buying properties in the suburbs were being systematically exploited, paying triple uh, double to triple, sometimes quadruple, what they ought to on properties and losing them. And uh, the speculators, meanwhile, were making huge amounts of money, drawing people in, taking down payments, kicking them out within a year or two, selling the property again over and over and over. So even as he's speaking to the Boltons, your father actually owns a property in the very neighborhood where they've been taken advantage of, right? Right. He owned several properties. The Boltons, with the first people who came to him, soon he had scores and scores of black clients who had suffered similar setups. They were in the south side. My father's properties were in the west side, but many contract sellers, these um, speculators, were active in the neighborhood where he had property. So he had properties in a neighborhood where speculators were buying up you know, whole blocks. One guy would own you know, four or five blocks, all the properties on those blocks. And be reselling them to African-Americans at triple to quadruple price. And what this meant was that those properties would decay rapidly because black buyers who bought in knew they couldn't miss a payment. So to make sure that they didn't, they would do no maintenance on the building. They would overcrowd the building. Husbands and wives would both work. If the husband had a day job, he took a night job. This meant children were unsupervised. This meant the neighborhood, already reasonably crowded, became densely overcrowded. And this is all in the same neighborhood where my father had been born and raised, where he owned a few properties, which he had hoped would sustain himself and his family. And he saw this property being pulled down 
along with all the others, or the value of his properties being pulled down by these speculators who are exploiting blacks who are trying to get ahead. So for him, it was on one hand a crusade based on the obvious injustice of what he saw going on. On the other hand, it was also spurred by self-interest, by his own self-interest in keeping a community in which he had invested stable. Now, the Boltons are a good example, but as we know, they're not the only family that had problems finding housing. By 1957, Chicago is the nation's most segregated city. Can you tell me the story of how this happened? Yeah, um, it's a complicated story, of course. Chicago became the most segregated city in the North and held that distinction for decades through a combination of factors. One was it had a real estate board, the Chicago Real Estate Board, who were that from the 19-teens on were leaders in pioneering methods of segregation. There were racially restricted covenants that covered much of Chicago. These were legal write-ins on deeds that said that Uh, this property will only be sold to Caucasians. They were outlawed, more or less, in 1948. But by that point, the FHA redlining procedures stepped in to do what the restrictive covenants had done, which is make it impossible for black families to move into white neighborhoods because they would not get mortgages there. And so there, you have this explosive demand in the black neighborhoods and a supply of housing in nearby white neighborhoods because after the war, whites were starting to move to the suburbs, and there were some vacancies. And what you needed was a way to get that property to blacks, and unfortunately, the only people willing to do that were these speculators who did it on the most exploitative terms imaginable. But between the policies of the Chicago Real Estate Board, the restrictive covenants, white violence, there was lots of white violence against blacks who tried to move to white neighborhoods and the FHA's redlining policies and the bank's uh, refusal to lend following those. All those things contributed, plus the final element was urban renewal. And just to be clear, the policy of redlining meant that if one black family moved into your neighborhood, nobody in your neighborhood could get a mortgage? Right. Um, It was assumed that the presence of a black family uh, lowered the value of, of the surrounding homes as well. And since the property values are going down, you don't want to loan there or insure mortgages there. And that sort of starts a cascade of people fleeing, right? Exactly. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. They're saying that because a black family is there, the property values will go down. Therefore, we won't loan because they're not loaning. The property values go down. So they set up the condition that they claim to be responding to. And because the property values are declining and no one can get a mortgage to buy people are forced to sell to speculators who already have sources of credit, right? Right. The speculators had close relationships with savings and loans. Savings and loans who would refuse to loan to a creditworthy black family would happily loan to these speculators. Um, The speculators paid high rates for their loans. Some people said they were kickbacks. Other people just said, well, just the highest possible, you know, rate you could possibly ever pay, you know. But one way or another, the savings and loans could make profits by loaning to speculators well above what they would have made loaning to regular creditworthy individuals. And so they did. And these speculators, of course, were doing lots of business. They were buying lots of properties. So it made some economic sense for the savings and loans to loan to them. In the midst of this whole situation, there were people who were trying to change things, including your father. Tell me who emerged 
that was trying to change the situation and when that was? Well, my father was somewhat of a lone voice in the early 60s. He spoke to newspaper men. He spoke to uh, newspaper women. He um, tried to get laws changed. He met a lot of frustration. He died in 1965 without having made a big change. But after him, after his death, a number of people activists of various sorts got involved. One, of course, was Martin Luther King, who came to Chicago in 1966 and tried to um, end slums. That was his goal. King, however, failed. But after King left in 1967, local Chicagoans emerged to fight this system. One was an unlikely person, you might think, a white priest named Monsignor John Egan, Jack Egan, a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful man who was sent out to the west side of Chicago to Lawndale as a punishment by Cardinal Cody, his cardinal, thinking, send Jack Egan out. It's all blacks. There's no hardly any Catholics there. It's a, you know, impoverished parish. What's he going to do? And instead, what Jack Egan did out there was help organize that neighborhood. He brought in seminarians and said, each of you should take a block as your parish and know everyone on that block, talk to every person on that block, listen to those people, and find out what's going on. Um, they went door to door, block by block in Lawndale, and when they listened to what Lawndale residents had to say, what the residents said was the thing that's hurting us the most are these installment contracts, these housing contracts. So they uh, then helped organize these residents. And as they start to do that, local residents, black migrants who had come from Mississippi or Alabama, emerged to lead the organization that, the, that Jack Egan helped spark. Um, the organization was called the Contract Buyers League. And in the late 60s and early 70s, this organization ended up pulling together thousands of Lawndale residents and challenging contract sellers and the federal government policies that lay behind contract selling in order to overturn the contracts and return wealth to Lawndale. It was a hard struggle, and they fought for several years, and it's a dramatic struggle. And part of what drove me to write the book as well is, once I learned of it, it's an unknown struggle. On WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, you're listening to Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Today on the show, we're talking about housing speculation and its effects. In a few minutes, we'll talk about the post-bubble housing situation in the Northwest Bronx with Jim Buckley of the University Neighborhood Housing Program. But first, let's hear the rest of my conversation with Burl Satter. Things had started to turn around by the 70s in terms of the law. Um, People were able to get mortgages. Um, There had been a protracted legal battle, but things were starting to turn around. However, contract uh, contract sellers still managed to um, profit mm-hmm. from the poverty of these neighborhoods. Tell me about the FHA fraud and the arson and all that. Yeah, there's um, a lot of ironies. By 1968, the FHA changed its policy and agreed to insure mortgages in black neighborhoods and in mixed-race neighborhoods. But they enacted a a bad policy. What they should have done is put out some kind of enforceable policy that said that mortgages would be sured based on the individual credit standing of the person who applies. I mean, that seems very straightforward and logical. Instead, they said that they would insure mortgages in, quote-unquote, black and minority urban neighborhoods anyone who loaned in such neighborhoods would have the mortgage insured 100%. And this was, in fact, an invitation to fraud. 
once you have um, an ability to get a 100% insured mortgage in one of these neighborhoods, you don't need contract selling anymore. What happened was that speculators uh, would go into these neighborhoods and buy up a building, say, for $5,000, a crumbling building. And then they'd bribe an FHA appraiser to say it was worth $20,000. And then they'd say, okay, now I have something written down that says it's worth $20,000. They would then be able to sell that property for $20,000 because the lenders didn't care because it was 100% insured. All they needed was some poor buyer to buy the property at four times its worth. And they got it because in the 70s, it was an era of great inflation. Many black and Hispanic buyers were priced out. There was very little housing available for them at prices they could afford, but they, these speculators would say, hey, it's 200 down. Don't worry about it. We'll do all the paperwork for you. you know, they would convince them to not pay attention to the final cost, only to the initial down payment. Sometimes they would loan them the $200. You wouldn't have to put any down. Very similar to what, ha- what has gone on recently with the subprime mortgage meltdown. And, and the reasons were the same. You don't need to worry about the creditworthiness of someone you loan to if you're going to immediately dump that loan one way or another. In this, in the case of the subprime crisis, people were willing to make these bad loans because they immediately sold the loans to Wall Street investors. Back then, they didn't care whether the person was creditworthy or not because the loan was 100% insured. And if the buyer defaulted, the lender would get the money paid back 100% from the federal government. Plus, they collect all the fees that they had charged and all the service charges and everything else. So they made a lot of money anyway. They didn't care who they loaned to. So this led to a lot of devastation in the 1970s all across the country where speculators worked with corrupt appraisers and mortgage lenders. And these mortgage lenders, just like today, were not marginal operators. They were big-time operators, prestigious firms who uh, just saw a profit opportunity. And they would take a down payment from a, a poor family, put them in the house, the buyers wouldn't be able to afford the payments. Often these places were in horrible, horrible condition. Uh, they weren't even livable. They would abandon the property, and the uh, lender would collect that insurance money, and then the speculator you know, could resell. So it ended up uh, laying to waste huge numbers of properties across the country in urban neighborhoods, urban minority neighborhoods, again, throughout the country. Um, Estimates of 240,000 properties being destroyed this way by fraudulent inflated prices and repossessions. And, you know, they knew they can sell at any price without having to maintain the properties in any way. And they did. So this was a a second phase. And then a final phase had to do with laws that were passed to make regarding fire insurance so that uh, you could insure a property in a slum neighborhood to get the same paybacks as you would in a fancy neighborhood. It's called the fair plan or something like that. And so these slumlords who had sold and resold and resold their properties over and over and over, and now they were just in terrible decayed condition, knew that they could buy insurance on the property. And uh, if it by chance went up in flames, they'd collect a lot of money. So they'd buy a property for $3,000 and insure it for $60,000 and um, there, I recount cases in the book where they were caught setting fire to these buildings. Um, sometimes they weren't caught, and they just kept collecting the insurance money. So lots of arson fires in the 70s as well. I'm going to ask you one more question. There's a lot more in the book, but I'm going to skip over that and ask you, if we go to the neighborhoods that you talk about in this book now, what will we see? Uh, you'll see different things in different parts of these neighborhoods. In some parts of the west side of Chicago, you see the shocking sight of an entire city block with one house standing. 
The rest of it is like a prairie, like a field, because all those buildings have been demolished, either torn down by the city because they were unlivable or because of arson. People look at that and they say, oh, it was the riots, it was the riots, you know, but it wasn't the riots. This isn't even the location of the riots. These are pockmarked throughout. But other parts are beginning to revitalize. South Lawndale in particular has become a um, immigrant neighborhood. Uh, lots of uh, Mexican and Central American immigrants have moved in there and they're opening businesses and it's it was doing okay as of a year or two ago. I mean, I'm not sure how the subprime crisis has hit it, but so it's 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 a mixed bag. But it's it's they didn't come out unscathed. There's no way. So today, they bear the marks of their history. Pearl Satter is the author of Family Properties: Race, Real Estate, and the Exploitation of Black Urban America. Pearl, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you for having me on. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Ahead this morning on Cityscape, a look at New York's Revolutionary War history. That's Cityscape with George Bodarchy this morning at 7.30 on WFUV. But first, in the last few years, one of the major concerns among those who work in low-income neighborhoods was that rising housing prices and rents were pushing poor residents out. In the last several months, though, worries of gentrification have been pushed aside somewhat by concerns about what's happening to low-income renters as a result of the rise in foreclosures we've been seeing. Jim Buckley is the executive director of the University Neighborhood Housing Program, which serves the Northwest Bronx, the neighborhood where Fordham's located. I spoke to Buckley in our studios earlier this week. I began our conversation by asking him about the research they'd been doing about housing speculation in this neighborhood. We looked at kind of a range of demographic information. I mean, historically, university neighborhood housing has primarily worked on uh, on housing and lending. And then in around 2000, we realized that some of the loans that we used to be able to do, we were no, uh, no longer able to do. The prices had started to exceed uh, the numbers that we could make available through our through our loan funds and through the uh, the lenders that we were working with. And that in turn led us to start trying to evaluate whether we were in a in a period where there was speculation uh, going on, or whether it was a a real improvement in values, in terms of uh, real estate values. So, just give me a short description of um, who lives in the Northwest Bronx. In the Northwest Bronx itself, I mean, what we've got is kind of a a, a very diverse population. So you've got, I would say, approximately fifty to sixty percent of the population uh, is Latino. Uh, about 20 to 25 uh, percent would be African American. Uh, you know, 15 to 20 percent would be white, and and then the balance would be really other and Asian. Economically, we're looking at a very high poverty level, uh, and so what we've got in in the Northwest Bronx, we're we're looking at a population that's approximately half uh, at or below the poverty level. A substantial number of those people are paying more than half of their income in rent. So we have kind of a unique situation developing in the Bronx right now. We have a situation where we are the most affordable borough. We have affordable rents in comparison to the rest of the city. Uh, and we have people coming here uh, to, to try to take advantage of the, of the affordable rents. And so what we are seeing is an influx of, of people uh, who have, in many cases, have lower incomes because they're being priced out of the areas that they're in. So what are the implications of this influx of people? One of the implications of that is that the assumptions that some of the speculators made and some of the lenders and investors made uh, are 
they probably never were going to happen, but they're not going to happen uh, for sure at this stage of the game. So you've got uh, a lower income population in a building that is probably over leveraged in the first place. And by over leveraged, I mean it's over financed. Uh, there's, uh, there's more debt on the building uh, than the building's rent roll would be able to support. Uh, and the only way that a rent would support it would be to substantially raise the rent uh, in the building. One of the ways that, uh, uh, that a speculator might try to raise the rent would be to try to turn over the population of the building quickly. Uh, if they're doing it legally, they might, they might have been doing it based on uh, doing major capital improvement work in the building and raising the rent using the, uh, the state law on major capital improvement rate, rent increases. If they're trying to do it uh, outside the law, which we've heard cases of where his first exposure to the new owner might be an, uh, an eviction notice from, uh, from housing court. Uh, in some cases, that might successfully drive somebody out of the building just because they're, they're afraid of dealing with housing court. What reality is proving is that people are, in fact, not moving. People are, are staying put. These assumptions that, that had been made in some of these earlier deals are, are, are not working out. And so we're starting to see uh, slowly a bump up in the number of multifamily foreclosures in, uh, in this section of the Bronx. Uh, and the implications of that are, are, are hard to know for sure, but historically, when you look back over the, uh, the work that, uh, that's been done here in the Bronx, uh, the implications have been in the past uh, major destabilization of, uh, of buildings. Uh, when Freddie Mac did a lot of foreclosures back in the late 80s in, uh, in the Bronx, uh, what usually happened in the building was uh, services were, uh, if not eliminated, were cut back severely, uh, made it very uncomfortable for people to continue living in the buildings. Uh, it kind of forced people in many cases to, to move. Uh, and then the conditions of the buildings continued to deteriorate until such time as a, as a new owner stepped in. What are we seeing today in terms of housing in the Northwest Bronx? What are the trends? The, the trend right now is, as I say, we're starting to see a slight bump up in, uh, in multifamily foreclosures. Uh, we're concerned that that bump up is, uh, is going to turn uh, dramatically higher over time because uh, a number of lenders that provided financing on multifamily buildings in, uh, in recent years uh, provided them on interest-only terms at the, at the beginning of the mortgage, so possibly for the first three to five years, interest-only financing, and then, and then it would convert to an amortizing loan uh, at the end of that time period. So there are a number of loans that are going to be coming due in 2010, 2011. Let me rephrase that. The terms would be re-underwritten in 2010, 2011 based on amortizing the debt. So once you start amortizing the debt, the monthly debt service payment would bump up substantially. The, the other issue is there's a number of buildings that were financed by both banks and what they call uh, predatory equity uh, funding sources. And the predatory equity really was providing the difference on the acquisition price from the mortgage to, to what the acquisition price was. So the banks kind of, uh, kind of, the banks did uh, tell us over and over again that they were being very conservative on their financing of the acquisitions because they were only financing 65 to 70 percent of the acquisition price. The thing that they did not want to find out about was where was the other money coming from. And, and I think we're, we're only at the beginning of getting a sense of what the impact of that is right now. Uh, around the city of New York, uh, the city housing department, HPD, and, uh, and some other citywide nonprofit groups have been estimating that it's in the tens of thousands of apartments are in jeopardy in these predatory equity deals, uh, where the, the the source of the equity funds are in jeopardy because they're they're not meeting any of the economic expectations they were expecting to meet, 
And, and what it will mean is hundreds of buildings around the city of New York possibly going into foreclosure or, uh, or I guess foreclosure would be one possibility. The other possibility would be such a deterioration of services that, that some kind of legal action on the part of the city around code enforcement would be required. I'll ask you one more question. I'll close with this. It's a little bit more cheerful. What positives can come out of the current situation we're seeing? I, I think there's a there's a number of positives that, uh, that that could develop out of this, and and some of it relate to the uh, amazing history of the Bronx. In Heinz, you know, going back in time, I mean, I started doing tenant organizing work for the Northwest Bronx Community and Clergy Coalition in 1975. Well, in 1975, the issue at the time was. Can we keep the buildings from burning uh, in, in many neighborhoods? I mean, there were a lot. There was a lot of abandonment. There was a sharp drop in the population of uh, the Bronx between 1970 and 1980, almost a 21 percent drop in population in that time period. There was also an incredible amount of community activism, uh, and and there was also some inspired uh, leadership in the part in both the nonprofit, the for-profit, and the political sector that managed to turn a lot of that around. So there's a there's a community infrastructure that's here in the Bronx right now that we can build off of. And what we would like to do is to be able to see if we can get the nonprofit uh, uh, and community uh, and, and some of the for-profit folks that we've worked with over time to work together to try to turn some of these potential disasters into uh, into affordable housing that would be safe and affordable for people for the long haul. Jim Buckley is the executive director of the University Neighborhood Housing Program. Jim, thanks so much for talking to me today. Oh, thank you. More information about the University Neighborhood Housing Program is at unhp.org. From WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us at fordhamconversations at wfuv.org. We would, of course, be delighted to hear from you. You can hear Fordham Conversations as a podcast or in our archives, both at wfuv.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thank you for listening, and have a great weekend.